You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to Nowhere to Run and Bible Prophecy Talk. Today's episode will be kind of killing two birds with one stone. So the the content for today's episode will be applicable to Nowhere to Run listeners and Bible Prophecy Talk listeners, for the most part, with a few exceptions, I guess I should say. So, Nowhere to Run listeners meet Bible Prophecy Talk listeners, and Bible Prophecy Talk listeners meet Nowhere to Run listeners. Nowhere to Run is sort of my audio blog. I talk more about um, basic Christian issues or apologetics, and sometimes conspiracy issues and that kind of thing. And then also... Um, you know, basically, as I said, sort of a blog of the kind of things that I'm up to and plan on doing. Whereas Bible Prophecy Talk at BibleProphecyTalk.com is, as it, the name suggests, mostly, well, exclusively about Bible Prophecy Talk issues. So let's get started. The first thing is show notes. I haven't done show notes for a while on Nowhere to Run, so I want to go through some of the things that you should be expecting to see in the next few weeks as far as the things I'll be doing and some things to look for on the different websites and stuff like that. I've got a lot of pages about show notes, so bear with me about that for a minute. And then I've also got a lot of uh, material in terms of questions to be answered, things that I think you'll be interested in. So this show is going to be a long one. It's definitely going to be over an hour. I'm not sure how long, but uh, let's just jump right into the show notes. So first of all, some things to look for on some websites. On Bible Prophecy Talk, I've just started uploading the Faith for the Final series, and you can check that out. It's basically, as I mentioned, Charles Cooper's uh, answer to the question about what we should do if we are, in fact, entering into the end times. Should we um, uh, should we be storing up stuff, or should we be fighting back? Or And his answer is that we need to be exercising our faith muscles. And so he goes through... Uh, many applications and, and a lot of scriptures about the importance of faith. So check that out. Faith for the Final on Bible Prophecy Talk. Episode 1 is on there. It's going to end up being, I think, 13 or more episodes. So check that out. Also, there are a few new blogs on ancientaliensdebunked.com. Frank Johnson has put out some great blogs recently. One is Ancient Aliens Debunk or Ancient Aliens for Kids. And he goes through some of the cartoons and things that we've uh, grown up with, uh, especially people in my generation that had ancient aliens themes that we might have missed. His thesis is that that was part of the indoctrination process, or at least maybe not in a grand overall scheme of things, but it certainly was there uh, indoctrinating kids like us and made us probably a lot more susceptible to ancient aliens ideas uh, as we got older. Also, he just put out one yesterday about the mana machine. This is one of the things that uh, the Ancient Aliens series said really early on. I was surprised when watching the DVDs looking for material to debunk when I did the film Ancient Aliens Debunked. Um, this was like one of the first things that they brought up, the mana machine. You would think this is like season 5, episode 3. 12 you know is is the mana machine but no they they brought out the mana machine early uh and it's such a ridiculous theory it's the idea that mana in the bible was really by this uh created by this sort of looks like the robot from lost in space nevertheless uh, he has written a, a good debunking of that idea at the Ancient Aliens Debunked blog. So check that out, ancientaliensdebunked.com. You can check uh, Frank's blog out. Let me see if I can get you the right URL here for his main blog. 
Right, here it is, don'taskthatinchurch.blogspot.com. That's don'taskthatinchurch.blogspot.com. Okay, the next thing I want to talk about is the format that uh, we've been doing here with Nowhere to Run, which is taking three of your questions and answering them every week. I think that's going really good. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback about that, so I'm going to continue that, and I like the way that this sort of trial period has worked out. It's working out great with my schedule, and it's working out great with my overall uh, uh, goals for this show and everything, so... That's great, but I had a decision, or I think this is the way I'm going to do it. We're going to throw something else into the mix here. I was trying to decide how I can juggle all this need to produce content. I mean, there's so many things that are that I need to do content-wise and podcasts and videos and things like that that I'm not doing. And one of the things that I feel has been neglected is my YouTube channel, the YouTube subscribers. I basically just treat them terribly. I never upload videos. I hardly do anything. Why anybody subscribes to me on YouTube, I'll never know. But it just, but they continue to, to do so. And I've got a number of subscribers, even though the main channel right now is my old backup channel. And my main channels have long been you know, gone. But I've rebuilt the, the, the subscriber base up and everything on a lot of the different channels. I've got several channels out there. In fact, a new channel, which I'll also put in the show notes, um, which is a full-length channel, which I'll use that um, in the future. But point is, is that that's, I'm neglecting that. I'm, ne- I'm neglecting the, the video ministry that I used to do, which, which was short videos, uh, a lot about different issues, whatever was on my mind. So I want to try to continue to do that, but my schedule, just there's not enough hours in the day or days in the week based on the stuff and the commitments I already have uh, to do that. So what I'm going to try to do is every week, the same day that I that I set aside to do podcasts, which right now is Friday or Thursday, depending on my schedule, um, I'm going to set that same time every other week to do a video that day. So I'm going to try to produce a 15-minute video in one day about some topic, whether it be uh, Bible prophecy or apologetics or the gospel or ancient aliens or something every week. So I'm going to try to put out a video every other week and a podcast every other week. Um, so this is going to change the Nowhere to Run to being an episode every other week. So that, But at the same time, I figured it kind of works out because you'll get the audio from the 15-minute video as a podcast, which will be sort of a... Um, you know, a bonus kind of episode that will probably have a lot more content in it than an hour of Nowhere to Run because I'll have to say everything and get to the point and do it in 15 minutes and that kind of thing. So you'll get a lot more, uh, I don't know, bang for your buck with those short episodes. So there's going to be a podcast every week, but also for the YouTube subscribers, my plan is, and this could change, I say a lot of things that I, I can't end up doing for one reason or another, but my plan is to, to put out a video every other week. Uh, with this time that I have here. And I think that is a chance for me to start pinging some of the things that I'm letting, you know, kind of die. There's a lot of different areas and ministry stuff that that is not being uh, tended to much, and I really try to need to try to figure out what, I, what I'm doing and how to get to all that stuff. Okay, next thing, um, books. Okay, so many of you might know that I have three books coming out. I've got one on Mystery Babylon that's being rebranded and retitled. The new title is Mystery Babylon When Jerusalem Embraces the Antichrist. Uh, I think the title really 
says a lot there. I think the, the title's intriguing because it explains it. It explains the hard part about trying to tell somebody that Mystery Babylon uh, is Jerusalem because they might get that when Jerusalem embraces the Antichrist because it might might make them think about some things that they've read in Scripture and sort of be like, well, yeah, that is a possible theory. Let me read this. Uh, anyway, Mystery Babylon, the Daniel Commentary, and the Sleep Paralysis book. Uh, one of them is done. Mystery Babylon is in the final sort of stages of getting that ready to go. Um, the Daniel Commentary is about 80-90% done. And the Sleep Paralysis book uh, is still really in the planning stages, trying to get everything worked out with the survey data and stuff before I've got all the outlines and stuff done. But it still needs some work there. So these three books are coming out, and it's part of a new strategy that is going to include evangelism and a lot of different things that I need to do. And I say need to do like this thing inside of me that I can't not do. Like, But I, I felt like there are roadblocks in certain places, like the sleep paralysis idea, for example. Um, it's really hard to get to all the people that I want to about that particular issue. But the book possibility, like going on tour with the book and really trying to get it in all the places and really do all the things that people do when they have a book, uh, trying to get it on the tops of the Amazon lists and all that stuff is a form of evangelism. It's it's a different avenue that I've completely left uh, untouched. And it is an avenue that I have come more and more with these particular issues, sleep paralysis and the Bible prophecy stuff, the various Bible prophecy stuff that I feel so burdened to say that I don't think I can go any further doing uh, podcasts or even small videos about it or whatever. Or um, I do think that the, the the plan for both of these things has to include, I'm going to talk more about the Bible prophecy right now than I am the sleep paralysis, though it applies. The plan that I have on my heart to do is really to change the world. I, I look at the modern state of, of what we're doing at prophecy conferences and things like that and the the views of of the the very good evangelical views of prophecy which is an offshoot of Christendom i mean there is not that much of christianity that's concerned about bible prophecy in the first place so you've already got a niche when you're talking about people that are interested in bible prophecy but those are the people that i have a burden for uh and those are the people that i want to suggest that i think that we're doing more right now about geopolitics we're getting sucked in so much of what what fox news is saying and 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 uh imposing that on the bible as opposed to what the bible is saying and i think that if you war game what the bible is saying and match it up with what everybody's saying that the bible is saying about bible prophecy you've got not just a disconnect but you've got a dangerous disconnect and so it's rolling around in my head all the things that i want to say about it but it's so much that i want to say that um, I think that the best way to do it is as follows. It's a f several phase plan. The, the, the third and final phase of this will be a film that I'll talk more about in future episodes, perhaps once I get the details a little bit more worked out. Uh, but the first phase of the plan is these books, Mystery Babylon being the first phase of that phase. What I'm going to do is basically try to get this book on the top of the Amazon that's list the 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 you know or at least near the top in terms of bible prophecy as i think that's a way to sort of get this started both the both the mystery babylon thing and the daniel thing are going to be necessary sort of resources for the film if and i've tried to think about this i've spent 
weeks and hours if you add, added all this up about how could you if your intention was to change the world how would you do it what would it look like if you really were going to do it and so uh, this is a long-term plan but a necessary precursor is to have these resources in print and so I've actually modified the the and, and rebranded the mystery Babylon book for clarity and just to have it be a position paper kind of thing really worked on the you know a lot of the the, the details of it and the footnotes and whatnot uh, you can you, the rebrand it's a it's a I'll talk more about the rebrand in a minute, but the new title is Mystery Babylon, When Jerusalem Embraces the Antichrist. It's um, got an amazing cover, which I'll talk about here in a second. But um, anyway, it's it's going to be something I'm going to basically go on tour with here uh, in the next few weeks and months and do a lot of the interviews, put out promotional videos and things like that. The goal, of course, is to not just to get it to rank high on Amazon, but to sort of push the idea into the 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 thoughts of of people that are interested in bible prophecy as sort of a preliminary thing. Uh I do want to talk about the idea of money at this point because it's important to me that you guys if no one else understands that my motivations for doing this because I'm like I said I'm going to go on promotion I'm going to be promoting a book that my motivations aren't about uh money. And I think that most of you probably know that, but 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 um, the thing is, first of all, there isn't a whole lot of money to be made in in these books. As I mentioned, we're already dealing with a niche of a niche. Okay, so not a lot of people are out there looking for Bible prophecy books. And of the people that are looking for Bible prophecy books, the stuff that I'm saying is extremely unpopular and on its face not something anybody's going to want to read. Um, so. I mean, if you take the numbers of a reasonably priced book, selling 500 books, which is pretty much an astronomical amount, uh, would yield like probably less than $2,000. So it's not something you can live on at all. Um, and even if I got you know multiple books out there, uh, do, and I don't, I don't expect the Daniel commentary to be anything like this. I don't think you can really do a book promotion tour with the Daniel commentary. Like, hey, a commentary on Daniel. And I mean, it would be very difficult to to do that. I, I expect to have that on there as just a pure resource um, that can be uh, looked at later on, um, that people that are interested in everything else. The, the Mystery Babylon has this ability to be marketed a little bit more because I think that, number one, it's it's a rock-solid case. Uh, reading over the, the rebrand of it, it's just, it's a very rock-solid case, but um, it also is rapture-neutral. Um, I don't really mention the rapture at all in it. I, I took out any kind of inflammatory references to things that were not as clear. Um, but but So it's it's not going to offend... Not a lot of people have very dogmatic positions about Mystery Babylon. Except, you know, the, the a lot of people like the, the sort of early reform formers and that kind of thing do have dogmatic positions that it's Rome and stuff like that. Um, but... Other than those people, there are very few people that uh, have extremely dogmatic positions. But I think that you can make a clear case, and I think that I do. Anyway, my point is is that I think that it's marketable and able to to do this with it. Um, but anyway, talking about money, all the money that will come in from any of these books is done by the nonprofit organization that I run. So it all goes right into that bank account. Uh, there are very good rules as to what uh, you know. I can I can take a paycheck off of that like a salary off of that but but I don't actually that one of the reasons that you know the whole I've been talking about as far as coming out here the tent maker idea 
of making sure I'm actually doing something on the side to generate income so as not to burden uh, listeners or subscribers or whatever with donations. But that, but the donations are still needed, but they all go into the ministry account now. I very rarely take anything unless we're like completely strapped for money and can't pay rent or something like that. Then, then I might take some out of there. But, but I no longer take a consistent salary off of the ministry fund. And in fact, just use that for uh, paying for additional ministry stuff, which is ironic that though I'm working more and have less time to, to really do the ministry stuff, I actually end up getting am slightly more productive because I'm able to outsource certain things in terms of production of content. Um, I'm able to pay people to help with uh, either video editing or uh, you know some kind of uh, computer sort of busy work type stuff or editing. I've got you know a half a dozen people right now that are doing stuff that normally I would be doing uh, because I'm able to to basically pay uh, people to do that. Though a lot of people end up. Um, doing it for uh, free, which is not something that I'm asking them to do. In fact, I, mean, I really want to pay people. I find, I'm finding it harder and harder to get somebody to take the money. Um, but, but nevertheless, that's my point: is that I'm that that I'm not doing this for money. It is going to come into the ministry fund, the little that does come in, and ultimately, it's going to be used, hopefully, in this schema, to be used for funding the uh, budget for the film, which is not going to be. A, but a drop in the bucket. I mean, if I'm going to end up doing this film the way that I want to do it, it's going to require a whole lot of money that, you know, is going to have to fall from the sky because it's just not at this point uh, doable. So, so part of the idea is to also be able to use the books to fund uh, this whole project in itself. And that brings me to the last show note, and then we're going to get started with a lot of questions that you have asked. And this show note is about M.S. Corley. He is the guy has been, that has been designing the book covers. And I would really encourage you to just look at the covers that he has designed. Um, I'll put them on the show notes here. I'll put a, a link to the different covers that he's designed. They are just amazing. They're really, really well thought out. And also, if you go there to look at those covers, take the time to then go to that banner on the right side and check out his site. I mean, this guy has done... Um, I mean, he's a total professional designer guy. I mean, he's he, you can see that he the book covers in that link. I mean, he's done stuff for the big publishers out there, Simon & Schuster and all this stuff. Uh, but he is, you know, a listener of the show. I mean, he's a lot like me in a lot of ways, and he is a, a, a Christian, genuine Christian guy, really, really easy to work with. And I encourage anybody out there that is... Uh, a writer or has been thinking about turning something you've written into an ebook. I've read a ton of stuff about um, the importance of you know how to market uh, books and stuff like that recently. And every resource will tell you that you cannot skimp on the cover. The cover is your main uh, advertisement. It is the thing in the Kindle store and whatever else that's going to make your book look professional. And so you really need to to get with a professional about that. I think this also works for rebrands of books. Like, for example, if you've written a book and it's on the Kindle store and you whipped up a cover in Photoshop, one of the great things about Amazon is that you can actually go back and change the name of your book, like change, not just changing the cover, which would obviously reflect the new name of the book, but you can actually go in there, re-upload, you know, a different name of the book and, you know, type in a different description and put different uh, categories 
that you think would be better in terms of marketing or, or search engine optimization. But yeah, also if you are putting out something or want to put out something, it's also a good motivator to, if you're like, you've been, you know, I got to put out this book. Yeah, I need to get start working on the book. If you do this first and you have uh, a cover like this, it's a real big motivator because you can see it then. It's like, okay, this is a this is going to be an awesome book. Um, and it will motivate you to start your project or maybe complete your project if you've uh, got it half done. One of the great things about uh, MS Corley is that he is able to really work with you in terms of your concepts. If you say, well, I'm seeing this, you know, for the cover, maybe something to do with this, you know, give him some basic art direction and he's able to turn that into something that is uh, really creative and genius and give you a lot of different options. In my case, I mean, I'm not sure what he does as a, as a, uh, a regular thing, but in my case, he gave me several options to say, okay, of these four or three, which one, in my case, is sometimes five, which one do you th want to see more of or what needs to be worked on? And in some cases, it was like, dude, that number three is it. That's unbelievably genius. Thanks. Um, so, so he's really good about that. He's very creative. So anyway, go to nowhere2runradio.com. Uh, check out on the right side, MS Corley, his, uh, his uh, blog. That link will take you to his book covers, but he can do anything, you know, video covers or website banners or, um, you know, anything to do with art that you need commissioned. I'm sure that he can do it and do it at a reasonable price. So check him out. And I'll also post a link to his work and the recent covers that he has done for me at Facebook. So check that out. If you are a friend of mine on Facebook, you can do that at facebook.com slash nowhere to run. Okay, let's jump in finally to question number one. Okay, question number one is about Mark Biltz's blood moon theory. This is a theory, if you haven't heard about it, it's been around for a few years, proposed by a guy named Mark Biltz of El Shaddai Ministries. And he proposes that something significant in Bible prophecy will happen around April 15th of 2015, or somewhere around there, uh, on Passover. Uh, he proposes this because of the passages in Scripture which talk about a sun, moon, and star sign. We find this in several uh, places in Scripture. Jesus says that it will be a sign of his parousia. Also in Revelation 6 we have it. Isaiah talks about it. Um, Joel talks about it. Joel says that before the great and terrible day of the Lord... The sun will go dark, and the moon will go dark, and the stars will go dark, and all this other stuff. It's repeated in several places in Scripture, known as the sun, moon, and star sign. Also, an earthquake is associated with it in several places as well. So, basically, Mark Bilt says, okay, if we've got a blood-red moon, that must be referring to an eclipse. And if you've got a sun as dark as sackcloth, that must be referring to a solar eclipse. That's his first assumption that's not necessarily clear but let's see what he does he goes to the nasa website and at nasa you can determine when all the future solar and lunar eclipses will occur and he finds a string of solar and lunar eclipses around april of 2015 which fall on jewish holidays that's interesting uh in itself but it's really not the meat of his theory the meat of his theory is that this idea of of solar eclipses and lunar eclipses following falling on Jewish holidays, this same pattern has occurred 
in on six occasions in the past since we have been recording lunar eclipses and this kind of thing. And he says that on three um, of those occasions, in fact, when I heard this first, I, I didn't know that there were six. I only thought that there were three, but apparently there are two more, except nothing significant happened on those two. So he doesn't mention them very often. But anyway, this occurred on on uh, six occasions. Three of those occasions, something significant was happening uh, with Israel. So, for example, in, it happened in 1492, and he says that was the final year of the Spanish Inquisition. It also happened in 1948, which he says the statehood for Israel and the War of Independence was going on, and in 1967, which the Six-Day War uh, was going on. So there were significant events in Jewish history going on around that same time. Anyway, the implication that Biltz originally had for this was that it was going to be the Armageddon judgment. Okay, so like most pre-tribulationalists, he kind of splits the return of Christ into two comings. One at uh, at the rapture, before the seven years, and then one at Armageddon for, for judgment. And in his view, he he says that this event in 2015 was supposed to be the thing at the end, at Armageddon. Now, this was proposed well before, you know, um, 2008, which if you you know, subtract seven years from 2015. 2008 is when the beginning of the seven years would have then had to happen. So my understanding of this, and I could be wrong about this, is that now, since 2008 has come and gone, uh, he no longer is dogmatic about that this being, you know, Armageddon or anything. He's just saying that, you know, he's putting it out there for information, and you know, something significant is going to happen. But the view in in pop culture about this is that this is when the rapture is going to happen and he does as alan kirshner has uh pointed out in his videos and things like that is seems to be encouraging this belief that it's a reference to the rapture and so a lot of people do uh believe that his theory has to do with the rapture whether or not he does or not i, I really don't know at this point but uh you can see alan kirshner's blog about that at pre-wrath rapture and then he has also recently blogged about that to a certain extent at his own website, alankirshner.com. A few other reasons that this can't be talking about the rapture, or I might even say it a little bit bolder, a few other reasons that what he is talking about with the lunar eclipses and the solar eclipses cannot be the same thing as what the Bible is talking about in Matthew 24, or Revelation 6, or Isaiah 34, or uh, Joel 2, the sun, moon, and star of sign event in scripture, how that can't be fulfilled by a lunar or solar eclipse. Let's talk about that. First of all, I think it's important to recognize that he's leaving out two things that are almost always included. Sometimes the other two things are the only things mentioned or they're or put a primary position in the sun, moon, and star sign event. It's not just a sign that happens in the sun and the moon becoming dark, it's also the stars and an earthquake. Okay, so let's look at uh, one of the uh, versions of this in Revelation 6.12. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. So here, an earthquake is the primary thing that's mentioned, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. So we have the stars of heaven falling to earth as well. If we turn to Joel 2, Joel mentions this twice. 
uh, in first in Joel chapter two and then in Joel chapter three. He says, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Here, Joel just mentions the sun and the moon. But in the third chapter, he gives us more information about what he means by this uh, by this turning into blood and turning black as sackcloth and all that. In Joel 3.15, he says, the sun and moon will grow dark. So here we get that he was talking allegorically and he was talking about you know, being blood, he said, it's going to grow dark, which is, of course, what happens when the when the the moon is obscured, it looks red. But then he says this, the sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. Okay, so the stars are also included in this going dark, which we just read in, in Revelation chapter 6, that the stars falling from heaven, which we can see here is referring to them also diminishing their darkness, talking about a universal darkness. That, that is also going to be included in the star, uh, sun, moon, and star sign. Um, when we look, I'm going to go through a few more of these because I think it's important that we really see what Scripture has to say about this sun, moon, and star sign. Matthew 24, uh, Jesus says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. So here Jesus is telling us it's about the light. The blood and the sackcloth is about it diminishing its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. So here we also not just have an idea of the stars falling from heaven, which Joel tells us when he references the stars, that they also will diminish their brightness. But we also have a shaking, which was mentioned in Revelation 6, which starts out with the earthquake that's associated with this. Okay, so let's move to another place. In Isaiah chapter 34, we'll find another reference to this, and it says... All the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll, and their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine, as the fruit falling from a fig tree. So we, here we even have the reference to Revelation 6, in that the, the stars falling from heaven are like a fig tree dropping its figs, or or whatever. Maybe that's in Matthew 24, it makes that reference. So here we have... A reference mainly in Isaiah 34 when referring to this star sign event, sun, moon, and star sign event, as just the stars being referred to in their diminishing of their brightness. Okay, so back to Mark Biltz. We have an earthquake and stars that and diminishing their brightness that that are also included in this sign. Again, we have him just mentioning a, a solar eclipse and a lunar eclipse, which don't happen on the same day by any stretch of the imagination if you look at the dates they're they are very you know spread out as to when the lunar eclipse is happening and when the solar eclipse is happening which are not even a vi- you know visible to most of the earth including Israel at the time in some cases in most cases the the issue i'm trying to get here is that first of all you can't and this was brought up by Charles Cooper in his video about this as well is that you can't have a first of all you can't have a a solar eclipse and a lunar eclipse at the same time because that's physically impossible because you, in order to have a solar eclipse you know you have to have the moon in front of the sun and in order to have a lunar eclipse you need to have the sun in front of the moon and obviously that's not going to happen at the same time across the world but the idea of the stars also being uh, dark and at this time gives us an idea that there is something obscuring the light totally now you can visualize this as some sort of you know, nuclear winter idea or whatever sort of thing you want to talk about that could cause all of the sky, not just the sun and the moon in an eclipse situation, which would not even happen at the same time, which is a problem, 
which this the text seems to suggest clearly that this is all happening at the same time. But it also needs to obscure the stars, which of course a lunar or solar eclipse has nothing to do with. Um, so you can see this as either, like I said, some kind of uh, debris in the air, or you can see it as a supernatural occurrence. Um, the earthquake and the shaking that's associated with it could also have something to do with it as well. Again, I, I lean towards a supernatural event here. And the reason I do is because it seems, though, contrary to what a lot of people believe happens uh, around the day of the Lord, is it seems that people are quite aware that what is going to happen here is God's judgment is about to begin. That's the reason that these verses are presented in Scripture, because they all follow then uh, judgment. For example, Isaiah 34, the next ver uh, verse 4, the next verse in 5 says, For my sword shall be bathed in heaven, indeed it shall come down on Edom and on the people my curse for judgment, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood, etc. So we're talking about the eschatological judgment. These signs are to say, the Lord is now going to judge you. This is the reason for the sun, moon, and star sign. That's also why the rapture is associated with it, because we as Christians are not going to be uh, in that judgment period that the earth goes through. So the sun, moon, and star sign event is, is saying that the judgment is imminent, and it's also where we see the rapture. That's why Jesus uh, concluded his, his answer to the question about when is the rapture going to be, uh, by it's going to be at this point, because we're going to be raptured right before the day of the Lord begins. Anyway, all that's discussed in several places. It's not really relevant necessarily. You don't have to know that in order to follow me here. Uh, my point is is that whatever the Bible is talking about also includes an earthquake and the stars going uh, dim, as well as the sun and moon going dark at the same time. None of that makes sense with Mark Biltz's theory. Okay, so this isn't talking about the rapture period, or the impending judgment, or anything else that the Bible is talking about. The only thing left on the table for Mark Biltz's theory is, could this be something completely not biblical, something other than biblical that might be some kind of uh, suggestion of something interesting happening with Israel at that time? Okay, that, The only thing left on the table is maybe because of the other times that this specific thing has happened, that maybe something interesting with Israel will happen at this time. And if that's true, we don't have any biblical you know, leg to stand on here, so we could speculate about whether it will be or not. But there are a few things that are worth noting about even that idea. The first thing that I will mention is the idea that was proposed in a paper written by Answers in Genesis about this. Their main point is simply that this isn't that rare or exciting. That is to say that lunar eclipses occurring on Passover and Sukkot are not that big a deal when you consider that the Jewish feast system and the Jewish calendar is based on the lunar cycle and that solar, or excuse me, lunar eclipses happen on a full moon and the the dates are spaced accordingly, you know, as far as in how the, the calendar is corrected due to lunar cycles and all this stuff. It's not at all that big a deal to see lunar eclipses happening on Jewish holidays. In fact, they, on that article, have a graph of 37 such eclipses happening in the 1900s alone on Jewish holidays. So 
so a big part of the weight of this theory comes from not understanding or considering that and so when you hear that four lunar eclipses occur in and around Jewish holidays you're like that must be impossible but really it's not if your calendar is based on the moon and it cycles and lunar eclipses happen in full moons so so basically no it's not that big a deal um, and I will refer you to Answers in Genesis for their article on that because they go through that in exquisite detail talking about why lunar eclipses occur and the nature of the Jewish calendar, etc., etc. So you can see that article for more on that point. But my main point would be about the time wave zero nature of this whole thing. The, remember how the whole point of his article, of his, his theory, essentially, is that this tetrad has occurred um, six other times, or is it seven other times in history? And on three of those occasions, something significant was happening with the Jewish people. It's it's that looking at the things in history, you've got these fixed points in history, and you need to find some connection in that point. So you look in the history books, what was going on at that point? i got to find something. And he found what seems to be these, um, these you know, matches. But, and I'm referring to, in Time Wave Zero, I'm referring to Terrence McKenna's so-called revolutionary computer program that predicted the end of the world in 2012. And we all know how that went. But I did a video about that called Time Wave Zero Debunked. And if you know about that you'll understand what I'm about to talk about and how he chose these matches and why they really are not that good of matches in the first place which the whole thing is based on so for example he says that uh, let's see here in 1942 this tetrad occurred around the Spanish Inquisition okay now the Spanish Inquisition is a pretty broad time okay it it really occurs he's referring to in 1492 to this royal uh, edict that made Jewish people either convert to Christianity or leave Spain, which happened in like in, in, in 1492. Now, one of the problems with that is that the the tetrads didn't occur until April 2nd, 1943, and, and for the Passover day, and March 22nd, 19, for, or excuse me, 1493, and March 22nd, 1494, the other set. So it's more than a year later is when the actual moon eclipses happen. So you've got the Inquisition starting and going on for a year plus, and then all of a sudden you've got this stuff. So even that's really not, you have to kind of say it, oh, well, it's the general time of the Spanish Inquisition that these things were having to do with. And if, and that also happens in the next one. He says that this tetrad also occurred near the War of Independence in 1948. We all know that's a really significant day in, in Israel's history. But really, it didn't occur, the, the, the tetrad didn't occur to until eight, April 1949, and then again, a year later, April 1950. So they're two years separated, and all of them a year after 1948. So again, it's not really, it like didn't happen on the day they declared independence 1948 by any stretch of the imagination. It's two years after that is the last one, you know, so it's not... You know, he's basically sort of being very loosey-goosey with that. And then the Six-Day War in 1967, that one has a little bit more credibility because it happens in April 24th, 1967, and then in 68, so a year after that. So that's really the only one of these things that even is in the same year. It's not on the particularly important day or anything in the war. It's just 
in, at least in 1967, at least got the year right on that one. Well, at least in part of it, the other one happened in 1969. But, again, you've got another three sets of these that, admittedly, nothing happened. You know, they kind of say, well, nothing really in history happened, but, you know, it, some of them had some persecution of the Jews happening dear, during those times. But, okay, so here's some issues that I have with this. Number one, the obvious stuff. What about the ones that weren't a match? I mean, and, and conversely, what about the more important historical events that were bigger and badder? You know, Hitler and the rest of it. Why, why isn't that a match? I mean, why, don't, why can't we take the bigger and badder ones and don't see any blood moons around that time? Um, so it's kind of the same thing there. But I would even say this. Why are some good and some bad? Okay, so on the lunar eclipses thing, you've got the Spanish Inquisition, clearly a horrible uh, time of persecution for the Jews. But then the other two are like victories, you know, the War of Independence and the Six-Day War. They're just sort of, just not not even the right times and just sort of picking and choosing what they're... And then, of course, you've got the big three that aren't even doing anything. So this isn't exactly like, wow, he's really found some significant correlations here. Uh, about this. So I, I think the more I look at this, the more I think this is like time wave zero for Christians. So um, so yeah, I guess that's all I want to say about this particular theory. Obviously, I do not think anything significant biblical is going to happen in 2014 and 15. If it does, I don't think it's going to have relation to these blood moons. I mean, it would just be a coincidence, basically. And I think that, you know, if really, I mean, if we followed his pattern... We should be expecting it in 2016-17, because that's two out of the three that he says are matches actually occurred a year later and then a year after that. So, really, I mean, I think the whole thing is just hype and, and unfortunate that uh, it has been given so much attention, because it's just really full of error, in my opinion. Okay, let's move on to question number two. Okay, in keeping with the Bible prophecy theme on this simulcast episode, I'm going to talk about the idea of the image of the beast. This was sent by a good friend of mine who we like to uh, sort of compare notes on Bible prophecy and things of that nature. And he was asking about the image of the beast. His question was, is it possible that the abomination of desolation, that is what we commonly refer to as the Antichrist sitting in the temple declaring himself to be God, is it possible that what's actually being set up is the image of the beast in the temple. Just a refresher of what the image of the beast is, we'll look to Revelation 13, 12 through 15. It says, and he exercises, this is speaking of, well, let me just read from 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the sea, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. This is what we call the false prophet, okay? So you've got the Antichrist and his buddy, the false prophet. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and all those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and did live. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, 
Um, okay, so basically it seems that this image of the beast is created and it says that um, it will be given uh, the br uh, given breath and that this image will speak and cause as many as would not worship it to be killed, to worship the beast to be killed. So it's interesting that this image is speaking and also causing people to be killed that will not worship the beast. Presumably, you could think that it's the worship of it um, that is by proxy the beast. If they don't worship this image, they will be killed. It's a very interesting idea, this image of the beast. The idea that the abomination of desolation, and I know I say this all the time, Antichrist sitting in the temple declaring himself to be God, uh, a la 2 Thessalonians 2, it seems from a lot of the other passages, including in Daniel, Daniel speaks of the abomination of desolation uh, three times, uh, the Lord speaks of it on, at the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and other places, it seems that it's the setting up of this image in the temple that is the abomination of desolation. And this is actually a very conservative viewpoint. Um, John Walvoord, who is like Mr. Conservative uh, uh, Scholar, says that it is in his commentary on Zechariah 1985. He says, uh, Idolatry near the time of the second advent of Christ will include the worship of the image of the beast in the temple in Jerusalem. And he cites Daniel 9.27 and 11.31. Matthew 24, 15, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, and Revelation 13, Revelation 13, 4. Uh, that he, but he also says, though other types of idolatry will also be present. Also, Warren Wearsby, who's also considered very highly in evangelical conservative circles, says that what is the abomination of desolation? It is the image of the beast set up in the temple of Jerusalem. An idol is bad enough, but setting it up in the temple is the height of all blasphemy. He continues about that. Also, this is Arthur Pink, who wrote his book, The Antichrist, as well as cited in uh, Dallas Theological's journal, Bibliotheca Sacra, Volume 121 in 1964, that it, basically all that to say that this is a pretty conservative view, that the abomination of desolation is the setting up of this weird image thing in the temple. However, there's a problem with looking at it quite that one-dimensionally, because in Second Thessalonians 2, um, it seems pretty darn clear that Paul is talking about this being the Antichrist himself. He says, let, uh, speaking of the man, the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Um, now this is interesting, because when we take into account the descriptions of Antichrist. We see him as a, a, a blasphemer, one who, who speaks boastful things. You know, Daniel's images of this horn speaking blasphemous words and a great mouth of boasting. And it's, you know, a lot of descriptions of him talk about his own mouth and his boasting. And that's a big part of this. So we have to somehow kind of come up with a reason why we, why we have this idea of the Antichrist being said to himself sit in the temple. Uh, whereas it also seems that it's a setting up of this image uh, created by the false prophet that is actually the abomination of desolation. And I think I have a solution that I would like to propose about that uh, in, in answer to this question, but um, I think it's also important to kind of decide to a degree what we can about the image of the beast and what it is. 
it appears to me that the image of the beast is set up to represent the beast clearly it's it's that's what it's called it's the image of the beast it's supposed to be a representation just like any uh image is the word uh that we get abomination of desolation for is referred to as a thing often in the scripture and it the idea is that it's an idol almost exclusively it's mentioned either as a god or an idol but almost always as an idol and so what an idol did of an idol of Ashtoreth or, or whomever it was supposed to represent the god itself though it was just a little trinket or what have you or a statue it was supposed to represent that deity and I think we have something very similar in that in the image of the beast it is an image of the beast it's an idol of the beast that is set up in the temple uh, to worship in my opinion because the Antichrist is not going to constantly sit in the temple he has other things doing he's got a very short time. So his wrath is great because he knows his time is short. The very things that we can see the Antichrist doing, not just in the run-up to this point, but also afterward, he is doing stuff. I mean, he is working really hard to do everything that he's doing. So he's not going to, number one, I don't think, be in Jerusalem all that time. I think that he has um, other things that he has got to go take care of, you know, news from the east troubles him, so he goes up there to, uh, you know, destroy, wipe them out, or whatever. He's 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 doing things during this time, and I think that the image of the beast is there in the temple as kind of like a uh, like a uh, a placeholder for him. It sort of receives the worship that he believes he is due, and I think that the reconciliation in Second Thessalonians 2 is that he sort of inaugurates this in his de- declaration of whatever exactly he declares when it says he's higher than God and anything called God and all the stuff that it says that he's supposed to do. That's sort of like a, a declaration of that and him sitting in the temple uh, as, a, as a throne or what have you, obviously saying that he is God and everything that's called God or whatever. <clears throat> and so I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. I think that he can do that, in, if you will, at an inauguration ceremony of the image of the beast. He's setting up the image of the beast to be a representation of as he was sitting there, which I think that he does at some point. That's that's what I think is going on there. That We don't have to have these be mutually exclusive. The Antichrist himself is the one exalting himself above all that is called God. And I think this is all happening in the um, in the context of a pilgrimage system that's going on I think that he's going to go to great lengths to make it seem as those the scriptures about the uh, what we know is as the millennial kingdom but whatever a Jew would just call the kingdom age or the age of the Messiah or what have you where Isaiah you know and others in Ezekiel talks about these pilgrimages that will be made by all the world will come to Jerusalem to essentially pay their worship to the Messiah and we expect that we see that clearly in the millennium passages and things, but it's also something that the Jewish people believe will happen when the Messiah comes back. And I think that that he is going to play that up. That is, the Antichrist is going to play that up. And I think that there's going to be a pilgrimage system there to receive the worship at this uh, at this location, that is, the, the temple. Um, and that's possibly where people are going to be killed uh, that don't worship him or whatever. I, I, I would be, you know... I'm, these are all details that are not very well spelled out in scripture, so I want to preface this and say that I think that it's pretty clear uh, to a degree, but I don't think this is something that we need to be dogmatic about. This whole particular issue right here is one uh, of diff- great difficulty. So I think that passages like Daniel 12, 
um, 11, which say things like, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. This idea of being set up is referred to several times, that language of this abomination being set up. And of course, it it is what you see in the prefiguration of the abomination of desolation with Antiochus putting a, a, a idol in the temple. So it's the prefiguration model that we see as setting up an idol in there. And of course, this, this language, this word, is a reference to a thing, to an idol. So, um, And I, I could see how you say, well, in a sense, it's also talking about the Antichrist. Well, it does appear, and it mentions a lot of very knowledgeable conservative scholars also see the abomination of desolation as being primarily about the image that's set up in the temple. But again, I think it is set up with the Antichrist declaring himself to be God himself and then leaving, if you will, the image there behind him as a perpetual uh, symbol of him being in the temple and receiving worship as the Messiah is supposed to do in the uh, end times. See, I think that in the actual end times, see, he has to kind of make, if you're going to really make it be like the end times, and it seems that there's really pilgrimages coming to the Messiah in Jerusalem um, consistently, day by day, or I don't know how it's going to work out, or whatever. If you're trying to fulfill that, Jesus, I don't know, if he's going to stay at the temple or whatever, it kind of almost gives you that impression that he will be at the temple all the time. And obviously the Antichrist doesn't have that luxury or any, I mean, I don't even think the world is in any way set up for anything remotely like that yet. So he is doing the next best thing with the image. The image is to make the scriptures seem to be coming more and more true. If you're going to implement this pilgrimage system of Isaiah 65 and the rest of it, then you have to do something about, you can't be at the temple 24 hours a day to receive the worship. So I think that's the function of the uh, image of the beast. And uh, and I don't think we have a problem with Second Thessalonians 2, because if we read it, it says what he's going to do, he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. That right there can be done either by him actually just speaking the words somewhere. He could do that in any place at any time, just speak the words. That could also be referring to a setting up of the image. Um, that is, he is opposing and exalting himself above all that is called God by putting an image in the temple. But the other issue is that uh, he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, this is where we, in order to get around this, I don't, well, I don't think that we can get around it. I think we have to necessitate that the Antichrist, the man himself, also sits in the temple at some point, um, as I sort of said, perhaps in an inauguration ceremony or whatever, and then uh, installs the temple, excuse me, the, the idol after that, as so to give the impression that he's perpetually there. Okay, that concludes my thoughts on that section. And the third question, I'll probably do more than three questions today, is actually from the same gentleman. So let's just go to question number three. Okay, he writes about uh, somebody he knows that is taking a view of the book of Revelation and its chronology that the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are all talking about the same thing, okay? So the seals are just another way of describing the seven events that happen with the trumpets, and the trumpets are just another way of describing what is happening with the bulls. Just different items are mentioned. So in, in that view, the book of Revelation is not chronological per se. It is three pictures of the same event all culminating 
in the in the return of Christ. This is uh, kind of a popular view. I'm, I'm sure it has a name, uh, or at least a name that's often referred to. It's it's a very common view, uh, and I think it is born out of a difficulty in understanding the chronology of the Book of Revelation. I know as a pre-tribulationalist, I had to come to the conclusion that it couldn't be cr uh, chronologically correct. Um, and so I had to start looking for other alternatives. And I look back on that and think it couldn't be chronologically correct based on my uh, current view of it. And I would be going pretty good, you know, Revelation chapter 7, 8, you know, but somewhere around, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, I would start to be like, okay, I am not, this can't possibly be all working because of this, you know, it doesn't basically line up with what I was believing at the time. But I do believe that the book of Revelation is chronological, and I'll explain to you why, and I'll also explain to you why I don't think that this view that the seals and trumpets and bowls can all be referring to the same thing uh, as well. First of all, I think that one of the problems people have in recognizing the, the chron chronology of the book of Revelation is these chapters I sometimes call Zoom chapters, like uh, Revelation chapter 12 or Revelation chapter 13, uh, Revelation chapter 7. So, for example, everything's going obviously in chronological order. Okay, You've got the, the seals, one coming after the other, and then he opened the fourth seal, and then he opened the fifth seal, and then he opened the sixth seal. And usually around the sixth of anything, there's like a, a, a kind of a break. And I call, I call these chapters Zoom chapters. And it zooms in usually on biographies. So in a Zoom chapter, on almost every occasion, we're talking about a biography of somebody. In the case of Revelation chapter 7, which ha occurs between the 6th and 7th seal, uh, it's a biography of two groups. One, the 144,000, and the great multitude that appears in heaven. Once that chapter is over, it jumps directly back into the chronology that you were at. It's, the next chapter starts with, and then the 7th seal was opened. So we're so we're still the, the chronology has not broken. We just took an aside to like zoom in and, and look at this the biography of these two people that uh, the Holy Spirit wants us to know more about. For example, the same thing happens with uh, Revelation chapter thirteen. In Revelation chapter thirteen, we are going quite nicely. We're talking about a lot of things that are happening in chronology, not just the not just the unsealing of the seals or the blowing of the trumpets, but other things that are clearly talking about a chronology, and then this happened, and then this happened. So these thens are connecting us in this, you know, pretty unbroken chronological story of Revelation, and, you know, an average reader is like, yeah, this thing is, is no problem, it's definitely chronological. But then, for example, in as I mentioned in Revelation 13, we are now in a biography chapter where it's zoomed into the Antichrist and, and the false prophet. And it gives us a biography of both of those guys almost for their entire career, a three-and-a-half-year career. And that's actually something that you'll see a lot, too. So, for example, after it gets done talking about the Antichrist, it, it jumps right back into where you left off before your biography uh, session. And another example of that is the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. Again, it's a biography that interrupts the chronology. We zoom in on this, this group, the two witnesses, and we are following their career for three and a half years. Again, we usually the chronology is the three and a half year uh, biography. That's when it only breaks the chronology for these biographies. In, in every case, I, I need to double check that, but I think the only time that Revelation breaks the chronology, which is consistent, is during these biographies. 
that are, except for the case of Satan's biography in Revelation 12, it takes him from basically the very beginning uh, to the to his end. So his is longer than three and a half years, though the three and a half years is mentioned in that biography in Revelation chapter 12. Um, so we see him first, you know, he's there, he's lying in wait for Jesus to be born, you know, he's, he's, and then we actually see him as his time is short, you know, he he knows his time is short, so his wrath is great and all that stuff. And that's also where it twice mentions the three and a half year period in Revelation 12. So again, in that biography of him, uh, the dragon, the great red dragon, it's also, uh, a three and a half year centric, even though it actually takes his biography from, uh, the the incarnation, if not before. So, anyways, a little bit about didn't mean to go into the chronology of Revelation too much, but in regard to the six seals and the seven or the seven trumpets and the seven seals and the seven bowls, are they the same thing just in different places? And I would say that that is one of the easier things to disprove. And the way you would do that is you would go to Revelation six and you would read and we're reading about the different seals being broken you know um, he's breaking the fifth seal and he breaks the sixth seal and in my view the rapture happens at the sixth seal because that's when we see the sun moon and star sign event happen it's the same thing that Jesus says that that's when you'll know when his his perusia is there and as I mentioned the next chapter it stops at the sixth seal now we still got one more seal to open right it's just one you know one more seal to open yet we're now taking this biography break before we get to it and in that biography as I mentioned we're dealing with the 144,000 getting sealed and this great multitude from every tribe named that no one can number appears in heaven okay this is exactly where you would expect to find the rapture or what what you would expect to happen after the rapture which I believe happens as the sixth seal You've got the 144,000 who are left now sealed, and then you've got this um, uh, group that appears in heaven all of a sudden. So it seems to me pretty obvious, but I know a lot of people have some issues with that. But my, it's not my point here. The next chapter after this biography is Revelation chapter 8, 1, and it says this. When he opened the seventh seal, okay, so it just didn't even stop. where It was just right on, kept right on going as if that biography in chapter 7 never even happened. Uh, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another, okay, so so here is the big proof text you have that the seals and the trumpets are chronological. That is because the opening of the seventh seal is the beginning of the seven trumpets. The opening of the seventh seal is the angels coming out with the seven trumpets. Now I know that in pre-tribulationalism we have sort of a had a, a sort of a weird view of this the scroll with seven seals. We have like a uh, you roll it a little bit and then you have another seal and you roll it a little bit more and you have another seal. There's nothing that I know of like that in history. But what there is um, and Alan Kirshner has this in his book and on his website, you know, pictures of scrolls. This is actually how they did it. Was a seven sealed scroll, a scroll that was not opened until all seven seals were taken off of it. Okay, just imagine a rolled up scroll with seven dots on the line of paper there that you have to take off of. And the in this symbolism of the Bible, the scroll is the wrath of God. So you're taking off one seal, and so finally you take off the sixth seal, and you can oh finally open up the scroll. 
And that scroll is the introduction of the wrath of God, which is, in this case, the trumpet. So you've got several problems here. You've got an absolute unbroken chronology. When he opened up the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour, and I saw seven angels stand before God, and to them were given the seven trumpets. So the unbroken chronology, Scripture couldn't have done it any clearer. It actually made the seventh seal the beginning of the seven trumpets. So it is, and the, from the connection between the trumpets and the bowls, a similar thing happens. We have cues that this is the same, you know, that the chronology is unbroken. You can also see this with the three woes. Uh, they're sometimes called the three woes that uh, appear. That also is showing the unbroken chronology and how uh, Charles Cooper goes into great de detail about how the three rows three woes completely destroy this notion that uh, the six seals are not the seven or the, or the seven seals are not the seven trumpets but I don't think you even need to go there I think this this accomplishes that quite well when people talk about this they do a similar kind of thing that people will do when they're trying to make false positives they'll look at the things that are similar uh, there is for example a uh, a place where the sun uh, and the moon also become dark later on in one of the trumpets and so they say, look there, that's the same thing as this over here. But it's it's looking at that one thing that is similar and discounting all the things that are not similar. And uh, we could go piece by piece on that. There's some great writing about that. As I mentioned, Charles Cooper has a number of things on his website about that. Um, and it, in my opinion, is an untenable theory. Okay. That is that. I'm going to move real quickly through a few more Bible prophecy related questions. So let's move on to question number four. Okay, this one was sent in by Jim, and it's a follow up question to some of the things I said about the 144,000 in a previous episode, a few episodes back. He asked a good question. He says, Are there currently 144,000 Jews in the world that could meet the qualifications for the 144,000 if the time is near? He says, any current Jewish movement from which the 144,000 might come out of. Now, we mentioned the idea that the 144,000 are described in Revelation 14, uh, as well as Revelation 7, but they are virginal, they are morally pure, they are from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and we, 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 you know 12,000 from each tribe. That would, of course, be difficult to do right now, because we don't even know who's from which tribe, because those records have been lost, other than perhaps with the exception of some of the priest class, like the Levites and the Aaronic priesthood or whatever. Some of those people, uh, like the Cohens, still know what tribe they're from. But for the most part, I'm not sure that's well known, although it's probably some research is being made in that uh, regard in Israel now, I'm sure. But my point is, is that no, we can't know, as far as I understand this, there is... There, this is not going to be coming from a group that is out there right now because the circumstances that the 144,000 are sealed is after the midpoint. So the three and a half year period leading up to uh, whenever they are sealed, because we don't know exactly when, they're not sealed at the midpoint, they're sealed at some point after that, uh, some point after the abomination of desolation. And there are a few things that are going on in the world at that time. One that may be significant to this is the ministry of the two witnesses. Um, I think that the ministry of the two witnesses probably ends up playing a role in the segregation of the people from which the 144,000 will come. Because the two witnesses are going to be talking about Christ. That's I am guaranteeing you that they're they're going to be prophesying about Jesus. That's the main 
the main focus of what they're going to be saying in Jerusalem. We've got to remember, these guys are prophesying in Jerusalem. Their bodies lie in the streets of Jerusalem for, uh, for three days after they are killed. So the point is, is that this is very Jewish context. We're dealing with a world that has gotten very, very Jewish at this time. Even if you don't take my peculiar views about uh, Mystery Babylon and the rest of it, uh, you would have to say that certainly the two witnesses are in Jerusalem, the Antichrist is sitting in the temple in Jerusalem, um, that the great persecution that begins at that point, its epicenter is in Judea, uh, the sacrifice, sacrificial system has started again. Daniel says that the abomination of desolation stops the daily sacrifices, so that first three and a half years includes daily sacrifices. My point is, is that the world is very, very Jewish, or at least the Jewish world is very, very Jewish at this point. I mean, it has gotten real Jewish all of a sudden there. So uh, it's in that context, not just that alone, because I don't think that Jewishness uh, in and of itself is is going to make people pure or worthy of being the 144,000. It's the particular aspect of these individuals being Christ followers. In Revelation 14, it says that they are uh, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. The idea of whether they are Christians or not, it seems clear that they can't be Christians before the rapture. That is, then they would go, you know, go with everybody else during the rapture. So they are sealed after the rapture. We're not told if it's directly after the rapture, if they immediately become saved or, or what have you. Um, but it does appear that uh, there is there is some connection between um, uh, their their works in a sense that is that they are virginal they are uh, moral they follow the lamb wherever they go it doesn't really make that clear that that is why that they were chosen uh, but i think another thing that indicates that is the the fact that they are chosen from from like 12,000 from each tribe at a time when we really don't even know where what tribe people come from so and again i think i made the point in the last podcast that we don't necessarily even have to know who's from what tribe i think that because it's clearly the Spirit of God and Jesus himself, or uh, whatever way that works, that actually chooses and seals. I think it's the angels that seal them. Uh, and nevertheless, the point is is that they don't even have to know what tribe they're from. You know, God just has to know. So I don't think it really is ne- necessitates us knowing who's from which tribe either. I think it's something that God can determine on his own. Uh, that being said, I think it does happen in a context that we are not even close to yet. I mean, we have to at least see... Um, the the seven year period start and the midpoint pass before we're even in the ballpark of the 144,000 being available. So so no, I don't see them being a part of any current group today. Um, because this is a part of the same uh, question from this gentleman, I will go ahead and read it without going to another question. He asks, I think that the main thing next to look for is the seven year treaty. Anything else other than general conditions. And, um, you know, the thing about the seven-year treaty and looking for that is that it's really kind of slim as to what exactly we're looking for there. The Bible does not give us that much information about the so-called seven-year peace treaty. Uh, there are There's some slim evidence that we're talking about a peace treaty, uh, but it's slim. It really is not explicit. I know it's a part of sort of the general prophecy lexicon. I lean towards that view, but the fact is it's really not clear. It just isn't. Uh, what is far more clear about what we're supposed to be looking for is the midpoint. Regardless of what, if, if whatever happens at the beginning, which I think it will be something that we'll notice. I think the sacrificial system seems, it has, 
has to be going before the midpoint. So right now, I'd say anytime you see the sacrificial, the daily sacrifice starting up again, yeah, that's that's kind of your cue that the midpoint can't be too far along. I think somebody explained it one time, saying that clearly because the Bible's put so much emphasis on the midpoint, that's the thing it really wants us to be watching for. Um, and I think that's why it's so important to get that right in the right context, because that's what Scripture's burden for us is, is to make sure we don't miss that. It doesn't really give us all that information about this so-called strong covenant with many at the beginning of the seven-year period. So, you know, it obviously doesn't put as much significance on that as it does the uh, the middle of the of the period. That being said, I think that, as I mentioned, there are certain things that will be able to notice before the midpoint, notably the sacrificial system being started, which has to start. So that's one thing you'll know for sure. I can tell you for, for sure that you will notice before the midpoint. Uh, also, you know, what, whether or not it's a peace agreement or, or it's just some kind of situation that allows um, the, the sacrificial system to be started or something like that, I, I'm not sure if that is going to be as cut and dry. But I do think that when we see it, we'll be like, oh, that's a strong covenant with many. That makes sense. I have a feeling that whatever it is, is going to be obvious to us when we see it. Um, but we will, of course, find that out later. Anyways, I think that's the end of the prophecy questions. I do have two more questions that I want to get to real quick that are not necessarily prophecy related, but they are things that I think both the audiences of Nowhere to Run and Bible Prophecy Talk can benefit from, so I will get into those right now. This one comes from Leo, and he asks, I'm an introvert kind of person, and I have a hard time relating to most Christians at church or anywhere else. I talk with them, and they seem like they don't see a, uh, or deal with real life or real world issues. Not to degrade the Christian name in any way, but I just can't relate. I work two jobs for a living and deal with mostly non-believers at work, but I long to find any Christian's that talk about or want to have deep thinking talks about the real things that are in the Bible. The people I have seen are good, but seem fake or too good to really want to spend the time thinking about the things too deeply. I guess my question is, do you know of any groups online or off in Minnesota? It would be great if they were knowing all of the things that you deal with from a new world, from the New World Order to Bible prophecy to Genesis to Revelation. I guess fringe Christians in small groups is what I would love to find. I really just need to find some like-minded Christians. I feel so out of place hearing pastors talk only about light, easy con uh, content when I see so very much more in the Bible than, uh, than airy fairy stories. Again, I don't mean to put down Christians, but I need real smart-thinking Bible study, a real smart-thinking Bible study group here Where can I, where I can grow. Hope you understand. Okay, Leo, very good question. It's a question I get a ton. In fact, the uh, recent show where I was asking anybody if they knew of any good forums or Facebook groups that I could send people to, I was asking that because I get this question so often. Chris, do you know a group of people that are like-minded that I could go and see You know, people in my local area? Or sometimes people are just looking for people that are like-minded that they can chat with online or, or and that kind of thing. And... You know, I like the idea of a forum on one of my sites or something like that or a Facebook group or something like that. 
I don't really feel like spearheading that myself right now. There's a lot of other things I'd rather be doing, and that is a very time-consuming thing. If somebody has a vision for that or whatever, I'll hear you out. But uh, right now, I'm going to give you some advice that is not necessarily to do with me setting up a, a Facebook group or a forum or whatever. Although, I mean, a Facebook group, how hard that could that be? Just set one up. I think I've already got one out there. But there's others out there, too, that could be set up, and probably ones that are already out there that you could find. Uh, if you just did a search on Facebook. So there's one piece of advice, but let's just jump right in. First, this person said that they have already tried church, and I want to go ahead and and say that for most people are out, that are out there, that church is probably one of the best places to do this. I mean, church is where you're going to have people that are Christians in your local area. That's, that's kind of like what it's, it's there for, right? It's for, for local fellowships. Now, in your particular church, there might not be anybody at all that's like-minded, but more often than not, there is a few people that are like-minded in your church. I mean, one of the first, or the first church I ever attended regularly uh, had Dr. Future and Tom Bionic in it, and Chris Pinto went there, and, and so on and so forth. So it was like, I mean, there are like-minded people of the stuff that we're interested in in church as well. I think uh, Basil and Gons on the on the Revelations Radio Network, I believe they they go to the same church and are clearly uh, like minded in their their what they're thinking about too. So it's out there. Maybe there's something your church can facilitate that you know with a bulletin board or some other thing. I don't know how one would go about that. Ask around, you know, in church. You know anybody that like talks about whatever, and you might just find somebody that is interested in that too. So. Don't disregard church, and perhaps your church just is so against it, you know, you need to consider another church or whatever. Um, maybe that would be an idea. I don't know. So anyway, I just want to put that out there first. Uh, other than that, there are certain programs and uh, communities and things like that that I think could be helpful in this regard. Two sites I want to mention, meetup.com and Google's Circles. Okay, so meetup.com is basically has all these different categories of stuff like I'm looking at their page right now uh, mom club in Huntsville uh, swing dancers of Huntsville you know whatever the, but the point is is that it's got categories in there like you know anti-new world order or conspiracy theories or Christian Bible study groups or whatever and if it doesn't have the the specific thing that you want you can create a group of your own and to, to more tailor the kind of people that you wish were there so uh, that's one idea. It sort of, it it basically knows where you are, and it uh, it looks for people that uh, are similar and want to be in that group too. And then you can schedule a meetup locally or whatever. That's what that site is there for: is to schedule a physical meetup with those people, uh, that group uh, that are interested in similar things. So another uh, site out there that I might recommend is Google's Circles. Now this is a app I think more than a site if I understand it right I've never used either of these things that I'm recommending to you um, but Google Circles seems to be a pretty pretty interesting thing and it basically is like Facebook for your city so you type in your city and if your city has basically its own sort of group and within that group there are however many niches of people that are into motorcycles and the people that are into this thing and that thing or whatever and again if they if you don't find whatever you're interested in there an anti-new world order group or you know sort of christian uh alternative christian ideas groups or whatever you can make one so i would recommend that for for as well as meetup.com so google circles meetup.com you could try something like craigslist though i'm not sure people on craigslist are out there really looking for that kind of thing 
So, I mean, you could put something on Craigslist, but I don't know. I just have a worse feeling recommending Craigslist than I do of the others because it's just such a a place where a lot of uh, bad things happen. Anyway, so I would I would recommend those two things, and then I would also say that you know the six degrees of separation. That is that everybody knows everybody within six degrees of separation, and probably um, less now that the internet exists. So you could probably ask some of your friends or somebody that you know in your family or whatever. Hey, do you know anybody that's kind of like me that's interested in some of this stuff? And and you know I bet you will find somebody in your local area that's at least close or whatever that you can network with or email or what have you. And finally, and probably most importantly, is pray. Um, I think that God answers this prayer uh, all the time for the need for fellowship and stuff like that. And make it a consistent prayer, and it probably will come from completely somewhere totally different than you weren't expecting whatsoever. So uh, pray and see what God does. Pray consistently. Make it a part of like, oh, and also, Lord, could you please help me out with the fellowship thing? Like, make it a part of your consistent prayer. And I think that is probably the surest way to find uh, people that are like-minded that you can not just be blessed by, but be a blessing to. I think it's important to remember that when the prayer gets answered and you find the people that uh, that you're looking for that are like-minded, and you're like, oh, man, they've got problems and issues and things like that. They're not quite as perfect as I was hoping. That's going to happen. You're, you're not going to find the most perfect solution in the world, and they're going to have things that are problematic. But remember that it's not all about you, that you are to be a blessing to them and to help them out uh, as much or more as they are to help you out and be a blessing to you. So you have a job to do in that scenario as well. So one more to go. Let's hit it. Okay, this last question is about uh, ministry ideas and how to know which things to work on, what things are God's will. And it comes from Frank Johnson, and this is the same Frank who helps with the Ancient Aliens Debunked blog. He writes, as pertaining to God's work, a.k.a. ministry things, how do you discern which of several projects are God's will to work on at that time? For example, my situation has me wanting to work on my next novel, the Ancient Aliens blog, and my own blog, and having to balance that with a full-time job much like your own situation, I expect. What's the best way for me to seek God's will in these projects and the resources that I can bring to bear? It's an excellent question and one that I'm sure that anybody that has done ministry work, especially these sort of uh, projects that they produce, um, has, has had to think of. And I guess that I have done it a number of ways in the past. I think that the things that I do almost always are the things that I have to do. So I do rely a lot on what you might call a gut instinct. And that, but that gut instinct, as I've analyzed it over the years, isn't always, you know, I'm not going to say it's spiritual in nature. It might just be the way that I am uh, wired that if I hear people constantly talking about a particular issue that's wrong or whatever, it just, you know, gets me so worked up until the point where I have to be like, okay, I got to do something about that. But it doesn't always have to do with like this sort of uh, sort of leading of God necessarily. I think that it is ultimately God's leading behind the scenes, but that not like uh, him telling you to do something. Like for example, with the David Icke and the Ancient Aliens Debunked project, um, those are both things that I wanted to do that I couldn't say with any certainty that uh, God had told me to do them or like I was being led to do them or whatever. They were just things that I was like. 
you know, I could probably do a pretty good job if I did that. And I remember, especially with the David Icke thing, kind of sitting around kind of hoping, you know, I would get some kind of burden or drive to do that or some kind of green light from God that it was his will that I do that or the same thing with the Ancient Aliens Debunk, but to a less extent by the time I got to Ancient Aliens Debunk because I think I learned the lesson from the David Icke thing, which was that, you know, I don't really need to wait for orders from headquarters on this. I mean, I know what the Bible says, and here's the guy that is uh, making people lose faith in God like crazy, and I have the ability uh, and the and the drive to stop that. So, you know, I don't got to wait for orders from headquarters on that one. I'll just go for it. And by the time Ancient Aliens Debunked, you know, came about, it was a very similar, very practical, very not, you know, what is God's will, what isn't God's will. You know, I didn't have to use the umen and thumen or anything like that. I just said, hey, this is something that I can do. This is something that should be done. So, and it was something that will bear fruit. I even did, by that point, I was doing sort of, you know, metrics and stuff like that and saying, okay, this number of people are interested in that and like doing research into the amount of people uh, to determine this would be a big enough project for me to be able to do. But I don't think that's the only way to do something, whether or not it's going to have a greater impact or something like that. I think there's any number of of reasons to to do it. Um, you know, for me, I think this might go a little bit more towards answering your question uh, because your question is about the things like, you know, what which project do you start work on right now? And that's something I have always, I um, continue to wrestle with that all the time, but I have recently come to the conclusion that um, I have to draw up for myself my, my purpose for doing the things that I'm, what do, what do I ultimately, in a macro sense, plan to accomplish with the various things that I'm doing? And I had to to determine what that was and let that macro goal shape the things that I would be putting my resources into. Uh, so it it kind of helped me to know what things to say no to or what things to uh, to to put in focus by defining what it is that I'm trying to do with ministry in general. Um, so I think by coming up with a, a clear clear vision of what you're supposed what you want to do with your ministry kind of helps define what it is that you should do next. Um, but in a front, more practical sense, the for example with this recent decision about like I've got all these things that are that are within my vision and what I want to do but are still like there's four or five or six projects that need to do within that need to be done within that particular thing and so now which one do I start to do because some of them are like whoa I gotta really get going on that and some of them are like I only got a little bit more to do on that and I actually took the idea of this very recently and I think it's probably the way that I'll continue to do it when it when it makes sense is the sort of debt snowball approach that uh, you know, referring to Dave Ramsey's system of like taking the smallest bill that you have and paying that off really quickly, and then getting that one out of the way, and then taking the next st- smallest bill and paying that off real quickly. Even though you might have interest accruing on some of the bigger bills, his point is that you get such a psychological uh, bonus by taking, get, you know, finishing bills off by and applying the money that you save to the next bill that it uh, that's his his theory. And in this situation, I did the same thing. For example. I put Daniel, uh, I've only got, you know, two, uh, maybe two and a half more sessions of Daniel to do, plus I've got to rewrite the first session and I've got to edit the whole thing and do a lot more with Daniel. 
but I had to take a break with that because I my the the smallest project that I had to do was to get this Mystery Babylon edited and repackaged and everything else and back uh, and, and and get that marketed and out there and stuff like that. So I kind of put that to the side to finish up the one that's almost done. That's Mystery Babylon is ready to go. So I've got so having that done will put me at a psychological advantage. I'll be able to then focus all my attention on the Daniel project and get that done and then focus all my attention on the sleep paralysis book and all that stuff. In the meantime, of course, I've got in my situation, I've got uh several tiers of things that I'm also working on and 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 you know, just the physical mailings and the emails and the and the you know, the film projects and everything else is in the putting out podcasts like this. It's it's a full-time situation or it should be a full-time situation. Anyways, I think that it can all be compartmentalized, but I do think that the most important thing has to be a simplification of your goals, and then the rest of it is just practical stuff. I don't think that God's will uh, needs to always be determined for ministry projects. We already have orders from headquarters to do things like make disciples of all nations. It could fall into the umbrella of a third of First and Second Timothy and Titus, which is to... Uh, refute false teaching of all types and to teach good doctrine and all the different things that the Bible tells us to do. Um, so there's there's no shortage of orders from headquarters and I think that the so most of our projects are going to be falling into those categories. So it's just about getting the practical things out of the way. And in my view, as of like the last week, the idea of getting the smallest project done first is a psychological boost if you have a lot of things that are just sort of ambiguous. But in talk, in terms of big projects, that's one that is a whole different thing. I don't think it's in the scope of this right now, but like determining which thing I'm going to spend a year on in terms of big film projects or whatever, that's a whole different metric about trying to figure out. And, 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 and I think that it has come down to, in that case, what I'm talking about. Of what is what is it I'm trying to do? If I'm going to spend that much time on something, it has to be right at the very point of what I'm trying to do. It has to be doing that thing um, that this is all about. So anyway, I hope that helps. Thank you for all staying with me for an hour and 30 minutes. Uh, if you have any questions for me, you can send them in to either one of the websites, nowhere2runradio.com or uh, bibleprophecytalk.com. I encourage you to stay tuned to both of the feeds as well as the YouTube feeds, as I hope as I mentioned before, that they will uh, be much more uh, active coming up in the next few weeks. I want to remind you about a few things. We've got the Faith for Final series being played on the Bible Prophecy uh, podcast. We've got um, the Mystery Babylon project should be out pretty soon. Ancient Aliens blog. If you go to ancientaliensdebunk.com, two new blogs there. And, of course, the MS Corley book covers and also seeing the book covers that he has done for me at the website's Nowhere to Run Radio, and on my Facebook page. So check out MS Corley and his website. I'm sure you will be impressed, and we hope to see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I have done for free at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.